It's uh, good to pray together and uh, bring our requests and our petitions and our thankfulness uh, to the Lord. And it was good to hear in those prayers as well the recognition uh, of our thankfulness to God's mercy that he would forgive sinners uh, like you and me. Uh, Sin is not a word that's used very much in contemporary language today and in many churches it's kind of avoided as well. Um, If we're talking about the issues that we face as human beings, it's far more acceptable and practised to use uh, more therapeutic language. Uh, In his book, Christless Christianity, well-known Presbyterian theologian Michael Horton uh, explains that sins, and I quote, become translated into the therapeutic language of dysfunction, uh, unhealthy behaviours that fail to merit God's favour on us in our daily search for good parking spaces, end quote. We've no sense nowadays that sin is an offence to holy God and that we need a saviour to deal with the consequences uh, that God will justly meet out upon us. Instead, sin is simply, as Horton extends, our mistakes or failures to be all that we can be. And that's a very dangerous place to be in, where we are seeking to dull down the gravity of sin in order to make ourselves and others feel less judged and more acceptable. But this is nothing of what we read in the scriptures. When Jesus returned from his first preaching tour in the region of Galilee, his fame was incredible. Uh, So much so that when people found out, they came and they crowded into a house so tightly packed in to hear him preach that some companions had to go to extraordinary lengths to crack open the roof and then lower their paralysed friend down on ropes to get to Jesus. What was more extraordinary than that sight, however, was what Jesus declared to the man. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And it cuts right to the heart of man's need. His greatest need was not the use of his limbs, but reconciliation to God. But this caused such a stir for the religious leaders. They were internally boiling. You could almost see the steam coming out of their ears, raging that only God could forgive sins. But Jesus knew their thoughts and then promptly told the paralysed man to get up and walk as a means of assuring the leaders and those standing by that Jesus did have the authority to declare sins forgiven. Why? Because he was indeed God in the flesh. But Jesus declaring the forgiveness of sins in Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 is extended in our passage today. As Jesus then demonstrates what forgiveness of sins looks like. His eating with the tax collectors and sinners is a vivid picture of what it means to be reconciled to God. And it's especially clear as this is the first example in Mark's gospel where the sinful nature of humanity is on display. And what's more, the passage emphasises the focus of Christ's mission. He has come as saviour. 
And so, we need to have a good grasp on the reality of sin. But then, we also need to have an understanding of the goodness of the gospel that overcomes it. So, please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were uh, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Today's message is entitled The Salvation of Sinners and in four points this morning we're going to see Christ's purpose for coming to earth and the transformation that he brings. So point one, in the first few verses of this passage we see the obedience of Levi and if you're a visitor here today you'll find the outline of today's message on the back of the news sheet. The obedience of Levi. Let me just read verses 13 to 14 again. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, it's not clear exactly how long after Jesus had healed and forgiven the paralytic that he went out again beside the sea. For him to do so was very common, given the amount of people that followed him and given the lack of facilities large enough for them to gather without being squashed, it made a lot of sense to just head outdoors. And it also meant a lot less property damage, given the events in verses 1 to 2, 1 to 12. But of course, the second that he walked outside, the people flocked to see him. Uh, the people had laid upon him almost a celebrity Status. You've seen pictures of photographers camped outside Hollywood celebrities' houses just waiting for the moment where the, the front gates open and the car comes through to get that perfect shot. Well, the authority with which Jesus preached and the, the miraculous power that he displayed in healing people and in casting out many demons resulted in people tracking down his every move. And it was not that Jesus didn't want the crowd to come, but that he wanted them to come for the right reason. He wanted them, he didn't want them to come for the miracles in and of themselves. He wanted them to come for the message that the miracles affirmed and authenticated. He wanted people to understand that their greatest need was to be reconciled to God, that they needed to repent of their sin and they needed to believe the good news of the gospel and receive Forgiveness. That's why every time 
that a crowd gathers, we see Jesus doing exactly the same thing. He teaches them. And the heart of that message is summarised in Mark 1, verse 15, when Jesus first comes out preaching. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God's saving rule, his kingdom reign, had arrived in Jesus Christ himself. And people needed to turn away from their sin, turn away from seeking a righteousness that was based on their own works and their own efforts, and to believe in the good news that Jesus would bring salvation for them. The message that Jesus proclaimed on the shore of the Sea of Galilee almost 2,000 years ago has not changed and will not change until the time that Christ returns and the time for accepting Christ in faith is no more. One of the reasons that we as a church should not and cannot let the priority of preaching the gospel which undergirds every single ministry we have in the church here, we can't let that be trumped by any other matters of seeming importance The reason is that receiving of God's forgiveness is for a limited time only. Sinners only have until they die or until Christ returns, whichever comes first. And if they don't take advantage of this most gracious offer, or if we withhold teaching them about this offer of grace, then they will still submit to Christ when he returns. But this time they will submit the knee to his righteous judgment upon them so this one particular day in Galilee while Jesus is teaching the crowd he he walks past a tax booth where Levi is at work and from the parallel account in chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel we understand that Levi is actually Matthew they are one and the same Levi being his Hebrew name Matthew being his Greek name and the name that he went by following the events of this day. Now, if you think this was a a random encounter, think again. King David declares in Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God doesn't just make us, he mandates every one of our days. While Levi may have thought he went to work that day because he'd penciled it into his calendar the moment that he'd received his roster, this encounter with Jesus was written into the divine calendar before Levi was born. God's sovereignty is an incredible encouragement to us all. There were two types of money collectors in Israel at that time. There were the tax collectors and the toll collectors. Tax collectors were focused on matters related to income and property, while toll collectors focused on matters related to the customs and and roads. Uh, That Levi was sitting in a tax booth meant that he was probably a toll collector uh, on the busy trade route uh, that came directly through Capernaum uh, from the northeastern city of Damascus uh, to the southwestern city of uh, Caesarea, which was right on the shore of the Mediterranean. Levi was most probably an employee. 
the one who owned the tax booth would have bought it as a franchise from Herod Antipas and it was set up to collect money on behalf of the Roman Empire. Now, this in itself um, meant that Levi would have been despised by his people because he was making a living by exacting money uh, from his fellow Israelites on behalf of Rome. But even more so, the tax collection industry of the day was inherently corrupt. See, as long as Rome got what it needed, those doing the work of a collection were known for inflating the costs uh, so they could extort their own greater cut of money and the people they were extorting were their own people. Jewish tax collectors were so loathed and hated by their own people that it was actually deemed allowable for Jews to lie to tax collectors without any sense of guilt. They were that low. But now, as Jesus walks past, he gives the same call to Levi as he had earlier done to Simon and Andrew, James and John. Jesus says to Levi, follow me. This was not the first time that Levi would have heard about Jesus. Jesus' fame was extraordinary by this point. Talk of his miracles had flooded Capernaum and the surrounding regions. Uh, Jesus' message had been delivered wherever he went. And even as he strides up to Levi, he's in the process of delineating that message uh, of the need for repentance of sin and belief in the gospel. He's, he's teaching the people as he's walking past. We know from the wider testimony of scripture that this was not Levi's own ability. Oh, let me just skip back then. So up until this point in his life, Levi had obviously not had enough conviction that his job and his life were in dire straits and to do something about it. But as Jesus calls, the the lights come on and he sees the absolute necessity to trust in Christ. And we know from the the wider testimony of Scripture that this was not Levi's own ability to see his need uh, that enabled him to respond to Christ. No, that's not the case. Simply just listen to Jesus' own words to his 12 disciples in the upper room. John 15 verse 16. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Pretty simple, isn't it? You did not choose me, I chose you. He's saying this to the twelve disciples, one of those disciples being Levi that Jesus came up to on that day. Only when the Holy Spirit worked in Levi's heart through the proclamation of the gospel was Levi enabled to respond with obedience. He rose and he followed him. He left everything behind. He had been made a new creation and now that the new had come, the old had gone. His involvement with corruption had to go and could not be returned to. Levi's obedience is a perfect example for us about the nature of saving faith. It is a living and vital faith. Human beings are a complex unity of mind and emotions and will. 
And true faith will affect every one of these areas. We must have an awareness of truth. We must know in our minds. We must have the knowledge of our need for salvation and the nature of the Saviour. We must know some facts to actually have faith. But secondly, we must have an assurance of truth, the the emotional conviction that the knowledge that we hold is indeed the truth. And then we must have an adherence to truth, the will to act upon what we are aware of and what we are assured of. An awareness of truth, an assurance of truth and an adherence to truth. Can that be said of you? If you claim to know Christ as Lord and Saviour, then does your life reflect this dramatic change? Are you seeking to be faithful to Christ in all areas of your lives? Not perfect, but faithful. Is your life characterised by repentance and a determination to obey Christ, leaving behind the old life of corruption? If there are areas in your life that stand in clear opposition to the words of Christ, then I beg you today to leave them behind and follow Christ completely. Because if you are not all in, then you are not in at all. There are no half measures to faith. Levi's life was dramatically changed that day and his faith in Christ was exhibited by his actions to obey Christ's call and follow him. But Levi's obedience is also seen in opening up his home for Jesus and for his fellow reprobate friends, many of whom recognised their sinfulness as well. And so the obedience of Levi is followed by point two, the openness of the lost. Verse 15 reads, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. After experiencing such a dramatic change in his life, Levi puts on this banquet, a great feast in honour of Jesus. But he also uses that as an opportunity for evangelism, inviting all his other tax-collecting colleagues and other morally ambiguous friends uh, to come and to meet Jesus too. Should we be at all surprised that when a person is genuinely touched by God's grace and experiences salvation, that their first instinct is to tell others about it, to tell them so that they can experience it for themselves as well? Think of the woman that Jesus met uh, at the Samaritan well. After her life was changed by an encounter with Jesus, she then headed back into town to tell everyone that she could find and implore them to come and see the man who told her all the things that she had done. Why is it such a common thing that there's a correlation between the length of time that you're a Christian and your, your limited desire to tell people about Christ. When was the last time that you had a conversation with an unsaved family member 
uh, or a workmate or a neighbour about Jesus? When was the last time that you invited someone to church? Why are we sometimes more eager to tell people about the latest movie that we saw rather than the greatest and the truest story ever told? That should simply not be the case. The longer that we are Christians, the more we should be learning about Christ and loving the things that he loves and the greater our desire should be to see others know him savingly too. Well, Levi, he takes the opportunity with this newly kindled fire to ask his friends and many accept the invitation. And it enables Levi to share his testimony and it allows Jesus one-on-one time to converse with them about the gospel. Mark writes that there were many who followed Jesus, which indicates that while the majority of the, the crowds that followed Jesus were after this superficial experience, there were still many whom the Holy Spirit touched and were responsive to Jesus and the gospel. The gathering at Levi's house represents a considered openness to the gospel. Now, the willpower of a a morally ambiguous person is not somehow less in bondage to sin than anyone else. They still need to be regenerated before they can respond. However, they are less likely to be blind to their own sinfulness. While they continue in sin, and there is, there is less likelihood that they are oblivious that their actions are indeed sinful. They know they're lost, but that's the only way they know. But this day, by the power of the Spirit, they recognise the need for repentance and their need for a saviour. And the meal was also an extraordinary picture of acceptance on Jesus' behalf. For to eat with someone signified welcome and approval. Just think of the commands in the New Testament to avoid sharing table fellowship with those who claim to be Christians but deny Christ by their lifestyles. For example, 1 Corinthians 5.11, the Apostle Paul declares this. He says to the church, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one. It is lest the wider world gets the impression that they are actually true believers. Now, back in Mark 2, Jesus is certainly not showing tolerance of their sin. He's not accepting the sinners without any change, but rather the gospel brings transformation. I mean, what does Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery and dragged before the crowd? Go and sin no more. What Jesus is doing by eating with these sinners is visibly showing what the forgiveness of sins brings about. It brings about reconciliation to God. Jesus is not tainted by his fellowship with sinners. They are transformed by him. But Jesus' response to the openness of the gospel openness of the lost, brings about this infuriation of the scribes. They cannot perceive that grace could be extended to such 
as these. And so point three, we see the outrage of the legalists. Verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now remember that the scribes were the lawyers, those trained in the teaching and reading of God's law. And many of these men belonged to the wider group of the Pharisees. Throughout the early chapters of Mark, we see the escalation of this animosity between the scribes and Jesus. We first heard about the scribes when Jesus' authority was contrasted with theirs when he first entered the Capernaum synagogue. Then when Jesus healed and forgave the paralytic who was lowered through the roof, uh, the scribes were there. But their indignation was silent. It was in their thoughts and their minds. But from now... And then in the next few episodes that Mark records, this hostility will grow and grow until we read in chapter 3 and verse 6 that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The scribes, they saw what happened at the toll booth and then they had seen the people gathering at Levi's house. Not wanting to contaminate themselves and go inside, they wait until people start to emerge and then they approach Jesus' disciples and they question them. Luke's parallel account informs us that there were scribes of the Pharisees there as well as those who were simply Pharisees. And I say that it was the outrage of the legalists because that was something that characterised the Pharisees. And when they first began that that movement, that group, it probably began as a desire for holy living and reflection of God. But it quickly became a way of separating themselves from the rest of the Jewish groups and the pagan world. The Pharisees had added to God's law many traditions that, like a, a fence that protects people from going over the edge of a cliff, um, protected people from straying into unholy living. However, as time went on, that fence kept encroaching backwards from the cliff edge so that he couldn't even see the view at all. And they became so focused on the external facets of the law that the true internal purposes were overlooked, a matter which Jesus addresses directly later in Mark 7. So, obedience to the law became a sort of moralism, a works righteousness That is, do this and you will be right with God. But as Paul, a former Pharisee, explained in Romans 9.32, Israel failed in achieving righteousness. Why? Paul says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And this also informed their understanding of grace, God's grace. The reason that they were so ticked off with Jesus was that his association with these morally degenerate sinners, these tax collectors, symbolised God's gracious acceptance of them. The Pharisees didn't believe God's grace extended that far, not until the person repented, cleaned up their lives and began to follow the law. Only then would they be acceptable. 
Let me ask, are there ways in which you are holding out grace to people around you? Are there instances where you are expecting others to reach a certain standard before you will accept them? Are there moments in your thoughts when you think God's grace will not extend that far to someone around you? Well, let me encourage you to think hard about just how far God's grace has extended to you. Think of the Apostle Paul, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. When his eyes were opened by the grace of God, his realisation of the greatness of grace to him impacted his understanding of God's grace towards others. He never again thought of himself as somehow better than those around him. Listen to his own testimony in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now let me also make clear that legalism is not the same thing as confessionalism. That is holding a doctrinal position, a statement of faith for a church and expecting people to believe that to become a member. We must not confuse these two things. Legalism is not confessionalism. We've seen that the the worldwide ecumenical movement has so watered down the gospel by saying we should be open to everyone, even people of other religions, and that unity trumps truth. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus preached the gospel and accepted those who would obey his commands. Whereas the Pharisees operated without grace and demanded people to reach certain standards before they were considered acceptable. And this is made clear as Jesus offers a rebuke in explaining his purpose for stepping into the world that he created. And so point four, we see the objective of the Lord. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What is the objective of the Lord? What is his purpose of coming into the world? It is to call sinners to repentance. And the notion of repentance is implied here, especially given the summary of Christ's message back in Chapter 1, verse 15, recall people to repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he was saying. This is made explicit by Luke, who recalls Jesus' words to the legalists in Luke 5, 32. And he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's clear from Jesus' words that he has a direct focus in his ministry. It's not to bring mere physical healing but to deal with the greatest need of humanity, their sin which separates them from holy God. 
This is why I came out, Jesus said to the legalists. And it mirrors what he said earlier in Mark chapter 1, verse 38 to his disciples. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. All throughout the gospel accounts, we find Jesus reiterating the focus of his ministry. Jesus declared in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself is the gospel because he is the one who provides himself as the sacrifice for sin. And Jesus' words here in Mark 2 emphasize his own nature. He is the compassionate one. He is the one who has come to grant God's mercy and grace. And he uses an analogy of a doctor tending the sick to highlight this point. Just as a a doctor exists to serve sick people, so Jesus has come to deal with the sinful and the lost. The Pharisees may ask, why does Jesus hang out with tax collectors? But where else would he be? He has come for sinners to seek the repentance and to grant them forgiveness, to bring them salvation. How does Jesus' attitude contrast with our own? If we are his people, then should not his priorities become our priorities? Are we reflective of Jesus' compassionate nature or do we better reflect the closed-off nature of the Pharisees? The church's mission, its purpose, not merely our church here, but the church is, a th- is threefold. There is the exaltation of God in worship. There's the edification of believers as we build each other up in the faith. And then there's the evangelism of the lost. While the gospel should always be pronounced clearly in the corporate gathering, should there be any unbelievers' presence, the focus is on edification and on worship. That's the purpose of us coming together. But what about evangelism outside of this gathering time? Are we seeking to present the gospel to those around us? Are we praying that God would open the doors for us to do that with our family and our friends? Are we praying that he would give us the courage and the words to do so? As a church, are we invested in focused ways of evangelism? If not, we need to think through that. We need to pray that God would bring people to hear the solid preaching of his word. But we also need to go out and bring people in. As Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the field. What about you? Are we not all under the great commission? Are we not all meant to be harvesters? But Jesus' words to the Pharisees are not merely to call attention to his own nature, but to cause them to evaluate their own. And by extension, it causes us to evaluate our own nature too, to give ourselves an honest appraisal. 
You see, all humanity is sinful. But there are two types of sinners. There are conceited sinners and there are candid sinners. The Pharisees, they were conceited sinners in that they were proud, vain and arrogant about their own self-righteousness. And they failed to recognise that in their unregenerate state, their righteous deeds were, as Isaiah states in chapter 64, verse 6, like a polluted garment. They had their own standard of righteousness that they lorded over others, and yet they failed to see the seriousness of their own situation before God. The Australian political climate of recent years, indeed of recent days, seems very much to be an example of self-righteousness. With leaders on the one hand advocating for the acceptance and approval of lifestyles that are clearly immoral and sinful in the sight of God. And then on the other hand, uh, we're suddenly vigorously and vehemently calling for blood when certain other lifestyle choices are perpetuated. When you become your own guide for what constitutes a moral standard, then you are certainly in pharisaical territory. You become a conceited sinner, blind to your own failings before God. And when Jesus says that he has not come to call the righteous, it is a rebuke to those who rely on their own self-righteousness. You can't do anything for them until they humble themselves. As Jesus states in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this mourning is a deep mourning over sin. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is a deep desire for true righteousness, the kind that only Christ can provide. Who has Jesus come for? Sinners. And more specifically, candid sinners. Christ has come to call sinners who know they are sinners and who know they have nothing before God and who know they are in need of a saviour. Of course, this insight is only made possible by the sovereign work of God in a person's heart. However, when we are speaking with people, just as Jesus did, we are to call them to recognise their sinful state and the eternal punishment that will come. And if that person is one of the elect, then God will work through the gospel message and transform their hearts. Ours is not to to go around looking under people's fringes and see if we can find a tattooed E on their forehead uh, to determine whether we need to preach the gospel to them, whether they're one of the elect. No, ours is to be obedient to Christ's command to proclaim the gospel to all, knowing that all whom God has chosen will respond. God is sovereign, but he works through the secondary causes of the means of his people. The salvation of sinners is the objective of the Lord. That much is clear. The question is, as sinners each and all, what kind of sinner will you be? Conceited or candid? Rash or repentant? In Luke 18, the parable of Jesus is recorded and it's extremely pertinent to this episode in Mark's Gospel. And on this, I wish to finish. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. 
Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Will you be like the tax collector who humbled himself and experienced salvation? Will you be like the legalistic Pharisee, so blinded by prideful self-achievement that he didn't see the desperation of his own situation? Jesus has come for the salvation of sinners. So repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Christ's willingness, earnestness to take on uh, the mission of coming into this world to save sinners like us. Father, we thank you for his determination and his focus and uh, the many passages that we've already uh, seen in Mark's gospel uh, where Jesus reminds people of his focus and reminds people of our deepest and greatest need the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that there is salvation in Christ. Thank you for the picture of uh, the acceptance of sinners, of forgiven sinners, that, that Jesus eating a meal with these tax collectors and others uh, symbolises for us. And Father, we thank you for the, um, the example of Levi and his obedience to Christ, his willingness to leave everything behind. May we uh, be like him in our willingness to let go of our sin, uh, that there would be no uh, habitual sin that uh, continues to dominate our lives, uh, but that we would be repentant and seek you. Thank you that, that you do offer forgiveness in Christ when we turn to you. But Father, we, uh, we pray as well for us individually and as a church, as your people, that you would help us uh, uh, by your spirit to have that deep desire to join uh, in Christ's attitude and his mission that we would be we'd be broken hearted and desperate to see people come and have the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation to you. We pray this and we thank you that you hear us and we thank you that salvation is possible because of your sovereignty alone. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen.